It's the economy, stupid. James Carville said those words in 1992, right before Bill Clinton thumped George H.W. Bush. Between the war in Kuwait in 1991 and late 1992, Bush's approval rating plummeted nearly 60 points as post-war national pride quickly disappeared behind a recession raging across the country. Carville was right, at least back then. Politics used to take a backseat to economics. How we felt about our job and our financial well-being didn't just influence who we voted for, it influenced whether we'd go out to eat or how much we paid for clothes. But at some point, that all changed. The average American today is better off financially than they were before the pandemic. Household savings are at record highs, wages are way up, and the job market is scorching. But consumer confidence, our economic outlook, is in the tank. The numbers are badly skewed by political party. Republicans are two times more likely than Democrats to be concerned about inflation. But last year, Democrats were twice as likely as Republicans to be concerned about tariff costs. Is it because they felt the impact of inflation and tariffs differently? Of course not. It's because they lacked faith in the current political leadership to stop it. Consumer confidence has become more of a political statement than an honest measure of financial health. So how do you educate people about economic policy when the realities matter so much less than their political leanings? Nobody can answer that question better than Tony Fratto. Tony was the assistant secretary of the Treasury under Paul O'Neill before becoming the communications director for George W. Bush, then a mainstay on CNBC, and one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Washington. Tony and I had a chance to talk about the friction between political tribalism and economic truth. We talked about how government and media have failed in explaining basic policy virtues to the American people. We also talked about Bono, wrapping presents, and why bagel sandwiches kind of suck. So join me for a little conversation with one of the most interesting people I know, Tony Fratto, and me, the dumbest guy in the room. Tony, my friend, good to see you. John, great to be able to catch up. Good to see you too. Love this podcast. Thank you. So, so much to cover, Tony. Some really big issues, I think, mm -hmm. that people will find fascinating because just the perspective that you bring to it. I want to ask about your company so people can get a mm -hmm. better handle on that. But you started your career in government as I did. First question, do you miss anything about working in government? The thing that I miss about government is the sense of mission that you're on. You know, every, anytime you're, I was in any one of those jobs... You knew why you were there. I mean, a lot of us who got involved in public service, I don't know that everybody does. Some people do it because of they like power or, but I really, really felt this sort of obligation of, you know, public, it was public service. I knew why I was there and, you know, that not everybody's going to agree with you and the kinds of things that you're trying to get done. But, you know, if you true of heart, your best intentions and try to do things right, that you're there for the right reason. So that piece of it, I really loved. To me, that was the hardest thing to try to, replicate in the private sector is sort of a sense of mission so that people feel like they're part of something. And because I think that's the way you get the best work out of people also. But I do miss that. It is a brutal time. I remember leaving Capitol Hill in the late 90s, and I really kind of was disgusted with the way things were going in Washington. I was kind of you know done with it. I went to go work for Governor Ridge. And I thought, wow, Washington's as bad as it can get. And I don't know. That, that, yeah, yeah. We weren't close. We thought you were at rock bottom. It's like, no, 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 we're not at rock bottom. People brought out the picks and sledgehammers, right? And got rid of the rock. You know, they, they kept digging deeper. Yeah, yeah. So I had John Anzalone, President Biden's pollster on in our first season. And I asked him this question because I, I think everyone's got a cool story or a funny story or a touching story about this opportunity we get often in these young ages in our lives where we're staffing these like dignitaries and incredibly important people, you took that to a much higher level than I did. 
one of my favorite stories connects back to you. I, I'm pretty sure it was after President Bush was elected. Mm. You had reached out and I asked if I could do a driving detail for an event that was going on in, in I think, Carnegie or Moon. Oh, yeah. And I was already out of government at that time, but I think I still had sort of passed the test to drive. And I was driving Arlen Specter, then Senator Arlen Specter and Congresswoman Melissa Hart. And I actually asked my roommate to borrow his Jeep Cherokee because I had like a sedan and I want to drive his car and we're pulling up to the event and my phone's blowing up. It was probably a Blackberry actually now that I think back on it to date, <laughs> to date myself. My phone's ringing and ringing and ringing and I refuse to answer it because I've got these two dignitaries in the backseat. I'm not going to answer my phone. Well, long story short, the dignitaries get out and I'm waiting to go through the sweeping, the Secret Service sweeping of the vehicle. And my friend proceeds to tell me that he had a handgun in the console of his car. <laughs> now, it was properly licensed and all, but oh my God, was I freaking out. I mean, I couldn't have been 24 years old at the time. But uh, oh, fortunately, I told the guys when they pulled up, I said, guys, I'm so sorry. There's a firearm in the vehicle. They, they all laughed at about it. But but I'm sure you've had so many amazing stories traveling with President Bush and it was a fun and times. So crazy. Oh, I'll tell you what, one of the fun, one of the funniest things is I didn't have a hand in this, but like I remember being at Rome and I, so you've seen the presidential limousine, sure. the, you know, the beast. And there are actually two of them always, you know, so you can't tell which one the president might be necessarily be in from a distance. And also in case one breaks down, you can president then can move to the other one. So we were in Rome and we're going to be heading off to, I think, to the Vatican. So the motorcade comes up or we're going to be you know, leaving where the president was staying. We were in a hotel and he was staying in a different place. And so we're on the motorcade and uh, waiting for the limousines to pull out of the hotel. And they, they pull out of the hotel. And I swear to you, like these things are so heavy. The limousine went teeter-totter on a bump, right? Like it went over and got stuck on a bump. It could not could not dislodge the limousine from from a bomb exiting the hotel, which was just classic. You know, just one of the funniest things I've ever seen. You know, of all the planning, if you know that President Biden is in Italy right now and in you know in Europe, Scotland, Europe, and you know, traveling around, the level of detail of planning, literally minute by minute walkthroughs, drive-throughs, you know, that goes through and the limousine gets caught on a hump. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Great story. Yeah. Great story. So you talked about the sense of mission and purpose that you have in government. And, and I think there's definitely some, not think, there's definitely some addictive quality to that, which explains why so many people stay in government their entire career or leave and come back to government. But you took a leap. And look, there's also a lot of people who take the first big job they can get going to work for a lobbying firm because they see the price tag that comes with that and everything. And you went from the fire of government to the frying pan of entrepreneurship, which is you know a similar leap to the one that I took. What inspired that? What convinced you to make a jump like that? I never told you this, John, but you gave me some inspiration for this also. By seeing the success that you had, actually was an inspiration for me. I, that I, I never told you that. You no, know? but I appreciate it. Yeah, you guys did an amazing job with the business you created. And, you know, look, I've had some other friends who've done it also. And, uh, you know, you see other people out there. But I've always, for me, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. Now, I left, you know, I was in government my entire career. I sort of fell into becoming a spokesperson. I never intended, if you'd asked me, what, like when I left the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, in 1991, what I would do with my career, it would probably be 
something in the foreign service or as a government economist, a trade economist, a development economist, maybe end up working at the World Bank or something. Didn't plan the route I took and certainly not the route of falling into being a communications, primarily communications professional. But I had this idea after a career of doing that where I saw where the holes were out there in the private sector. I saw people trying to do communications on complex issues. And frankly, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I thought like they're not doing a great job. And so there's an opportunity there. And I also knew that after an entire career of speaking for other people, I would like to speak for myself also. So I wanted the opportunity to, you know, I've been a CNBC contributor for 12 years now. I get to go on CNBC and say what I think about things. And so that's a lot of fun for me. And I also didn't want to necessarily get up every morning and put on the company hat. You know, the fact that we've been so successful has been, obviously, it's rewarding. It's rewarding professionally and financially and from a reputation standpoint. But also, I get to look into, you get to do this with your business. You get to look at so many businesses on how they run and what they do. And you just learn so much from the things that these companies do. A lot of them doing things right and some of them doing things poorly. But you learn a lot by watching them. And that, to me, this is really, that's fun and interesting. It's like every day, it's interesting. I, worry, you know, I would go from issue to issue, company to company, region to region, and just get to see a lot and do a lot. And that's really exciting. But I have to give most of the credit, though, really to my wife, to Judy, because after a career in government, we don't make a lot of money. It was like rose to nice levels, way greater than I ever imagined. I never imagined I would be assistant secretary of the Treasury. Never imagined I would stand at a White House podium and brief from the Brady briefing room. Not in the realm of possibilities. Kid from McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, think like that's your future. So I got to do those things, but I left government in debt, you know, driving <laughs> old cars. You know, it's like, it's not, that's not the glamour. You know, Air Force One is glamour. Camp David is glamour. Foreign trips are glamour. But your bank account it does not look very glamorous when you leave government. And so one of those opportunities, and we took it, but I had to go tell Judy, hey, I'm going to turn down these nice paying job offers I was getting. And instead... I've got this crazy idea for a company that I think is going to do really well, but I don't know for sure. And I'm not going to take a lot of money out of it in the first few years because we're going to reinvest in it. And so please stick with me on this for, for a few years until we figure out whether it works or not. So I definitely credit her for giving me the chance to do that. And it's worked out really well. It's been nice. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I mean, it's to say, I, I always say Tara's my biggest business partner here, right? I mean, yeah. that's the only way that that works is to have that kind of support and somebody jumping into that risk with you. Um, yeah, seriously, if, if Judy had said, Tony, like, look, I followed you to DC. We've done all the things, you know, I quit, she quit her job in Pittsburgh, which she loved to move to DC. And if, she, if she had said to me, look, it's enough, like, let's get back to normal. Let's go back to Pittsburgh, take the best job available in Pittsburgh. We'd be happily ever after. And it would have been, it would have been great. And I would have done it without looking back at all. Well, I'll brag for you. One of my, of all the things you've achieved that I'm so proud of having watched, I'm not sure anything was cooler than hearing Bono call you out from the stage at Heinz Field when U2 was playing in Pittsburgh one time. The greatest back, Yeah, that was pretty cool. I don't know if you had to pay him to do it. No, I know you didn't. So you had had a chance. I know one of the things you're proudest of was the work that you were able to do in AIDS for Africa and a lot of that work mm -hmm. that took you around the globe. That's how you got to know Bono, if I'm right. Correct. It is. It's one of those really special things that fall into your lap. But I actually got to be the lead in designing that trip. And so even for you know the six months before the trip itself, 
working with Bono's people and traveling to London and them traveling to DC for us to work through the itinerary. It was very collaborative, you know, where Bono's people would talk about the things that they would like to do. And we talked about the things that we would like to do. And we went basically, you pick an event, we'll pick an event. And with uh, themes. These people are all friends to this day, very close friends of mine, you know, all the, all the people we worked on that trip now, 20 years ago. And Bono, you know, I said, look, Bono has lots of friends, you know, but I call him a friend. He's a friend. If I saw him tomorrow, we'd hug. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I was a huge fan of the band long before I ever got to meet Bono. And they know that, you know, he knows that. He knows, <laughs> sure. that. He's a, he knows that I'm first a fan of the band, but also a fan of the person. And he's a really remarkable person. And that was really special. You know, he's, he finds ways to do special things all the time. And in fact, he, you know, he sent me a note after my father died a few years ago. And, you know, you talk about out of the blue, like, you wow. know, I don't expect that from anybody, let alone this like Irishman out there, rock star, but he is a special person. He cares quite a bit. He's very thoughtful. He finds opportunities to do that. And that was one of the greatest gifts anyone could ever have given me to be standing there with my kids who got to hear that also. And then seeing my Facebook feed blow up. Blow up. Did Bono just <laughs> give you a shout out? <laughs> yes, that was super cool. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the meat of, I mean, as best we can in the limited time we have. I mean, the craziness we're going through right now, but about nine years ago now, almost 10, if I were, the conversation started, you came to me with an idea, which I can take zero credit for, which was an observation you were then making about some of the macroeconomic measures that were out there, the ways that we were trying to measure and understand how consumers were feeling about the job market and the housing market and their personal finances and major purchases and what have you. And there's lots of instruments out there were and still are to do that, but you saw an opportunity to build a better mousetrap. We did build that mousetrap. It's now called the HPS Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index. For the sake of the listeners following along, we'll just call it the ESI from, yeah. from here here yeah. to four. Why did you see that as such a good, and it's been great for both of us, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's terrific. Highly it's a, validated in terms of like the vision, but why did you think there was room for or need for a, another one of those indices? I think it, I do think it's an, a wonderful product, and I know you'll maybe you'll give the information in the show notes on where people can find it because it's really terrific. The thing I saw out there, so I saw what you guys were doing with your ability to acquire answers to for, you know for people to get their views on a whole range of things, and at the same time, I would look at you know a couple times a month the conference board and the Michigan survey would pop out there, and I would think. Man, why is it that you know, John is able to get people's views on a whole range of things every single day throughout the day, but we have to wait for these big moments? And, and I'll tell you, coming from government, I've, been, I've always been a little bit frustrated by the lack of sort of real-time data reporting. You know, I have the same issue with the jobs report. We have this huge, you know, at the end of this week, we're going to have the jobs report, which involves questioning, you know, 60,000 households and businesses about whether they've hired or laid off people. And then they model it and they come up with a, the jobs report that the market, the global market pays attention to. My feeling is we're going to be running. So every day you have a sense of what's happening with the jobs market. There's no reason why it can't, you should not have these giant events. And I felt the same way about these surveys about consumer sentiment. Why do we have to wait for these lumbering old-fashioned companies that do these surveys 
to put out their reports that people sit around and wait for to know how people think about their personal finances, how the economy is going, what they think about the world, their intentions to buy big, expensive products like cars and refrigerators and houses and things like that. Why don't we know that every day? And I saw what you all were doing with your ability to survey continuously, vast numbers of people and highly representative samples of people. And I thought, well, let's put our heads together on this. And we see the problem. You've got a solution. Let's go do this hand in hand. I think it's been, and we have such a track record on it. I look back on it. It's really remarkable to look at the data that we have stored there. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you saw it a mile away and you were spot on, but it even just, you know, in October, the conference board puts out their October number with the headline that consumer sentiment improved in October, which we knew was completely wrong because what happened, the way these lumbering surveys, as you put it, work is they have to take their survey. They collect their data during a single point in time, like a handful of days. Right. Well, yeah, for about four or five days in early October, the consumer confidence was okay. And then it was a shit show for the next three weeks. And we knew that. Yeah. I mean, it just makes me want to. It's it's amazing, isn't it? And like, it's still like this day and age, it's like like the old fashioned way that television would figure out what you're watching, you know, like uh, what's the company that does it? It may be a client of yours now. Nielsen? Nielsen. Yeah. Yeah. So, like the way Nielsen did, like, I mean, we were a Nielsen family once, you know, and like we got the survey set top box and you do all that, you know, it's just like, that's the way I feel with these guys. Like, why are they not doing this speedy, real time, continuous and let market participants and not just market participants, right? Those investors, so trade in the market. That's an interesting enough thing. If you are an auto company, if you are a major retailer and you're trying to figure out like how much product we should plan to purchase to put on the shelves. Like you want to know this stuff in real time. You don't want to know what they thought in the second week of October when it's the first week of November. This is outrageous. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think most smart businesses, business retailers and the like generally are looking for more of that sort of real timeness, but I'm just still surprised at how much the markets react to those month old surveys that are taken in tiny little snapshots of time. When the light bulb went off for me with the ESI, well, actually it wasn't when this particular thing happened. It was a couple years later and I reflected on it, but you may remember we got some coverage when we launched it. And the Wall Street Journal did a piece about how we had identified lagging consumer confidence among white rural Americans which is another thing these bigger macro indicators don't do very well is like segmentation and demographic cuts that we're able to do with our data. And that observation was surprisingly prescient about what happened in 2016, because overall consumer confidence was pretty good at that point in time. But what we identified was this really soft group of people that had a significantly less positive view of the economy. And of course, the chickens then came home to roost three years later, shocking everybody with an election outcome. But I feel like that, as much as the real timeness, is the fact that we know economic growth and economic hardship does not happen at an equal proportion to every man, woman, and child and race in the country. One of the frustrations of mine in government and in politics was that you know you kind of take voters for granted. So the big segments of the population, you assume how they're going to vote. And so you don't really answer their questions very well because you decide where else do they have to go? You know that they're not going to vote for the other guy no matter what. 
So don't answer their questions, just get them out to vote. And that happens on both sides, whether it's Mm -hmm. Republicans with rural voters or Democrats with African-American minority populations that vote in very, very high rates for their parties. You take them for granted and you don't answer their questions. So you just deal with the people in the middle. And sometimes in talking to the people in the middle who have mixed views on things sounds incoherent to the basis of your parties. It just doesn't make sense of what you're saying to them. And so it's hard for those groups of people to really understand what you're trying to do, what your priorities are, what your points are. And it may be because you don't really have priorities and your priorities are to try to get those people to go vote for you not to answer their questions, not to solve their problems for them. And certainly not, again, like the frustrating thing for me was to not educate them about how difficult some of these things are. We have become a world where there is enormous political advantage to separating people and to make all issues black and white issues rather than to help people understand that problems are challenging and difficult. And here's a tangible examples on trade. For years, I put my economist hat on. So I'm an economist guy and I do communications. And we would talk about trade. And I would say we would go through messaging for a a free trade agreement we're going to deal with. And, you know, and I'd say, well, like, you know, we should say this about exports and we should say that about imports. And people go, ooh, no, 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 no. Don't say anything about imports. Like, well, you know, like one of the benefits of trade is that you get to buy whatever choices, the best that the world has to offer at the best prices, you know, we get to sell the best that we can produce to the rest of the world too. So it's like trade is two way. It's like, never talk about imports. Imports are bad. I said, but imports aren't bad. Imports are good. You want to be able to also export. So everyone's doing their best. And he says, so for decades and decades, ever since the very first global free trade agreement, the Kennedy round negotiations in the 1960s, We have led Americans to believe that only exports are good and imports are bad. And that's what people tend to believe. And exports are good and imports are good. And we've done nothing to educate anybody that that's the right way to do it. So we all sit around and people say, well, why are we doing these trade deals now? I don't understand why we're doing these trade deals because they seem to only be bad to me. You know, I know what you said about exports, but someone else is exporting. I'm just getting the hit by the imports. So that's a messaging part, but then there's a policy part. So what do you do about it? Because it is true that some people are impacted by imports. Well, don't lie to them. Don't lie to them. Tell them the truth and then put in place policies that can help them deal with that situation and mitigate the pain of it. We have lots of policies to deal with the pain of a factory. You know, the factory gets shut down. What do you do with it? You have tax advantages for it. You could turn it into loft housing or all kinds of things that you can do with it. The investment capital, we have lots of laws to protect investment capital and depreciation and all that, you know, tax, all these things that you can do. But the people, we have very few things that we do for the people that are impacted by trade. And so they get upset by it. And they ought to be upset by it, not because of trade, but because we haven't done anything to either help them understand what was happening and to help them deal with the economic circumstances they're now facing. Well, I mean, it's such a powerful point, right? And so we've done a terrible job of helping people understand the nuance of these issues and all they see is sort of the end result. And what's gotten worse, and I don't know when this started, and certainly people would love to throw social media under the bus about it or go back to Trump or whatever, but at some point people started to realize, not only do I not really understand what's happening, I can't trust anybody to tell me what's happening. 
So James Carville famously says uh, it's the economy, stupid. The idea, of course, being that people vote based on their views of their economic circumstances, financial circumstances. But that seems to have changed at some point where now people's views of the economy are kind of driven by their political tribe, right? So a year ago, when we would ask people how worried they were about, say, tariff prices or tariff costs on their household spending, Republicans weren't worried. Democrats were worried, right? Now we ask people about inflation. Republicans are far more worried about inflation today than Democrats are. What's the difference? The difference is whether or not they believe or either have any faith in the people in power to fix it or whether they want to sort of implicitly blame the person in power for causing it. How do you fix that problem, Tony, when people aren't even able to feel confident understanding the nature of the issue? They're just going to say, what's my answer supposed to be based on which side of the political tribal spectrum I'm on? Boy, I, you know, I wish, I mean, you guys were the earliest, I think, in seeing some of that. I mean, over, you know, over the last 10 years, I think, you know, it was showing up in your data quite a bit. And back then, and I remember early on seeing it on just like a couple big issues, like on trade and immigration, but, you know, views on those issues would toggle, especially trade, especially would toggle depending on who was president, you know, just see it like very, very clearly, whoever was pushing for it, their party would be for it. And we're seeing it in every issue now. And I think it is dangerous, right? Because it's obviously, you know, it's not evidence-based. It's just purely sentiment. And nobody trusts information they're getting from anyone except from their partisan, whoever that happens to be. Well, even like the voice of the partisan changes sometimes too. And so you get these situations where Republicans are toggling between issues and Democrats are toggling. I mean, I remember when Democrats used to be, but when I, I joined the Republican Party, in early 1980s, when Democrats were not pro-immigration, you know, because labor unions were anti-immigration and Democrats were anti-trade, then Democrats became pro-immigration and, and then pro-trade a bit under Clinton and then under Obama. And now they're toggling back again. They're still pro-immigration, but they're anti-trade. You know, so these it, it just keeps changes. Like, what are you? What you are is what you're, where your partisans are at the moment. And I don't know that it is, it's easy to say politics has changed it. I think it's true. I think we do feed into however way we can move people in the moment. You know me, I'm not an anti-social media guy. I love social media. I use it all. I think on the whole, it's good. I think we're kind of like toddlers working with, you know, playing with big complicated toys right now. And over time, we saw the same thing with radio and television that had massive changes on how we think about things and understand things. And I think we're going through that now with social media, and it's going to take a while for us to work out how that goes. But I do think social media has something to do with it because we end up standing on the same pieces of land with our other people who think like us. And so then that it just reinforces the things that we hear more often. And so it's not that we become, we stand with other people who think the same way about this topic, it's that we stand with them even when they change their mind about the topic. So they change their mind about the topic because of a partisan move. And then you feel like, well, if I'm part of that club of these friends of mine who I talk to every day, I'm going to change along with them. And so you get pulled around by this sort of prevailing views of your like-minded friends. And it's, it makes it really incoherent and very difficult, very difficult things to get things done. It's actually become much, much easier to stop things from happening because you can rile up groups to oppose things. It's really, really hard to get people out to support things. 
and therefore to get their elected representatives in places of power to support things. Yeah, I I think the other implication of social media is it has allowed people with, frankly, what I would consider fringe or even extreme points of view to feel that they're part of a larger group than they actually are, because they find those groups, you know, even I, yeah. I, I went on a rant about vaccines on this a couple of weeks ago. I mean, 81% of Americans right now are either vaccinated or intending to do so very soon, right? And there's like 13% who are flat out against it, right? That's 13% of the country. We are not, quote, divided on vaccines. We're not. It is, I mean, there, right. there are very few issues that 81% of Americans agree on, and that's one of them. But that 13% is sort of self-selected into a small chamber of people that they will convince themselves that they're much loud, you know, the, quote, silent majority, which we know isn't true. But I have a theory I wanted to run past your hypothesis. I don't know if it's a hypothesis or whatever, but I feel like in your, I don't think there's anybody better equipped to answer this question than I know, but I feel like there's a misperception or an overweighting that happens among the average voter in terms of what role the president and the executive branch actually have on the economy and in the near term, right? And I would even say in the near term, being within the four years of a term, right? There's this perception that like, fuel prices are the president's fault and the stock markets, the president's doing and what have you. What's your take on that? My general sense is that the president and the executive branch have fairly little of impact on the near-term economy, but you may disagree with that. Well, you do have, I think presidents get both too much credit and too much blame for whichever direction the economy is going, but they, they do nudge it in a direction or, you know, or two. I mean, you do get some policies in place and some signaling in place where people make economic decisions based on what they think is going to happen. I used to fight this when I was at Treasury because we deal with, with people who are always talking about what we should say about the. I was the guy who talked about the dollar. When I say talk about that, I mean, what are the specific words that the U.S. government should say, meaning and primarily the Treasury Secretary and work you know, with Treasury Secretaries and other, other staff? But I was the one speaking to reporters all the time about what do we say about the dollar? And there's this view that if you, whatever what we say about the dollar will signal the direction that the dollar is going to go. And I said, that's bullshit. No words are going to decide which direction the dollar goes. We have to be smart on how we talk about the dollar so we don't sound like idiots. We should be smart and truthful and not say dumb things about the dollar. But the global dollar market is it's enormous. It's the biggest market in the world for anything is the global dollar market. And the market's going to reflect economic fundamentals of the US and the global economy, period. There's nothing you can see. You can't jawbone the dollar in any, in any direction. You can't jawbone the US economy in any direction either. You can make it harder or easier to do certain things that do have an impact on economic decisions that people make. And administrations do have some marginal impact on that, on things like investment decisions and foreign direct investment in the United States and the tax rate. So, you know, if you change the tax rate, you get people shifting what kinds of investments they do and whether they do, you know, marginally more or less entrepreneurial activity. Little bits, you know, not big shifts, but we, you know, we have seen some things that are pretty dramatic. So for example, China was a huge investor in the United States. Now, whatever your views on China are, you may say this is a great thing that Chinese investment in the United States has gone to something close to zero. For cultural, national security issues, you may think that is a really, really good thing. On a purely economic basis, it's a cost to the country. You know, there are billions and billions of dollars of Chinese investment in the United States and US companies. And that's gone down very low. Well, that was a decision 
that were by the Trump administration to discourage Chinese investment in the United States. Again, whatever your views are on China, but that is where the president does have some power to do right. certain things. And so it can have some economic impact. But by and large, overwhelmingly, man, the U.S. economy is huge. It is right. it is really, really big. And there aren't levers up there that you can do big things on shifting this, this giant aircraft carrier in any quick ways and certainly not in a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of nailed it. It's just generally this idea that there's way too much blame and way too much credit assigned to that one person. And, the, the, you know, it's just that, yeah. again, it's just another misperception thing. You usually find the economy doing things more, the economy doing things to the president than the president doing things to the economy. Right. Well put. Very, very well put. All right. Is there any way to fix this mess, Tony? I mean, how do we even chip away at it? I don't know. It's like, I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, I mean, not a lonely voice because a lot of us feel this way, but the task seems so daunting. And when I say this to people, sometimes they look at you like you're crazy, right? But I still think, though, that at the end of the day, there's going to be a payoff for people who are telling the truth and teaching and educating. Like if, if communicating respects the audience and teaches and shows with, with real evidence, overwhelmingly, at the end of the day, that will win the day. And so those of us who are doing those kinds of things... We love friends. We'd like to have more of us, you know, more people doing them. I do think at the end of the day, that's going to have an impact because, you know, I believe this, like you can only sell snake oil so many times. Eventually, the consumer says, I know snake oil when I see it and when I hear it. And so I I do think, you know, or at least I'm hopeful of of a shift back where people who are talking about things in honest ways. And that doesn't mean like the establishment. I just told you on the story on trade, like how the establishment has failed people, right. you know, not because they thought that the facts were wrong. They didn't respect their audience. Right. You know, they did not respect their audience. They thought our audience isn't smart enough or nuanced enough to understand this. If we take the time to tell them, and I think that is always wrong. If you do not respect your audience, eventually it will catch up to you. And so, For all communicators out there, respect your audience, trust them if you teach them. If they're not getting it, it's not them. Right. You. Right. If you're the communicator, your audience is not getting it. Man, boy, they don't get it. I'm throwing up my hands. It's like, guess what? That's your fault that they're not getting it. Do it better. You know, do it better. We need to figure out like how do we do it better? to get people to understand. And it's like, we better figure it out. We certainly have all the incentive in the world to go figure it out. So let's go do it. Yeah, look, I'm going to steal this one from you. The notion that we're sort of like toddlers playing with these toys, right? Because they are so relatively new. But ironically, I mean, sort of if we're using the toddler metaphor, I'm uplifted and optimistic by what I see in my teenage kids. I know my kids are a little younger than yours, but It's like this Benjamin Button thing in reverse, right? Like, I feel like our kids know how to play with these toys than our generation does, right? I feel like they're more discerning. I think they are quicker to be skeptical when they're supposed to be skeptical, know where to look for trusted information. I'm pretty bullish on Gen Z and and I think maybe overcoming the ills of, of our generation and our elders around this stuff. But yeah, the idea that we can't continue to talk to people like they're dumb, right? And I'm not saying that obviously we don't, but I think the press tends to do that, right? It's the yeah. it's the gaming, the headlines that they put in there to try to get the clickbait. I mean, that's that's just manipulating people. So great message, Tony. Those are some really big, heady issues that if we could solve them, 
we'd get Nobel prizes for it, but everyone in the world's trying to figure them out. And, and I agree with you that at the end, I think virtue prevails, hopefully. So look, so I'd like to wrap these conversations up with some of the more fun questions that we ask at Civic Science, just to end things on a light note. So I have five poll questions for you that will rifle through pretty fast. And I have a sixth bonus. Okay, question. good. good. Number one. Say, before you get into it, I'm optimistic too. Like we are not ending on a down. I'm on an optimistic. I, I think the kids are all right. And I yeah. think I'm optimistic too, John. Good, good. Yeah. I think that's why we're friends, Tony. Yeah. So if you could live on any other continent, which one would you choose? I think I know the answer. We may have already talked, or maybe you'll surprise me. We didn't. We because I would I would live in Europe and I may end up living in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, look, you know what I love about Europe? I spent a lot of time in Brazil and Africa and Asia and elsewhere. I like the fact that you can go to, you know, drive around and get to 18 different cultures, right? So not why. I mean, I, I practice my French and Italian every day, and I love Germany and all the other, all the, the mix of cultures in one close place, I think is really fun. It's like Epcot Center. Yeah. And it's not even just the driving. Every time I go to Europe, it makes me so frustrated at how terrible our train travel in the US is, right? Yep. Like, yep. oh man, that's, that's what makes me envious. All right. So Europe, Europe wins by a long shot. So 39% of Americans chose Europe. 28% chose Australia. That's the number two. Uh, I guess just the, the allure of America, America South, I guess. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. What is your favorite sandwich vessel? I can give you the options. Toasted bread, bagel, croissant, French bread, donut, English muffin, bread roll. Ooh, wow. That is, that's tougher than I would have guessed. Well, and I know um, you're into bread, so I figured I would. I am. I love bread. And, I, and so I think I'm going to go baguette. You know what? It's really divided. Number one is toasted bread. Of course, we're eating. I, I love toast. I love all of those, you know? Yeah. I, I actually. Mean, a croissant sandwich is amazing. Yes. That's my, that was my pick, actually. Croissant. So you and I tied 14% of Americans say croissant and baguette. You know what? Bagels, 10%. I think a bagel is a terrible sandwich vessel. It yeah, just, I, everything squeezes out the sides of it. All slips out. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a fan. Not a fan of it. 100% agree. You're right. Yeah. That would be last on my list on that list. Yep. Are you good at wrapping gifts? I am brilliant at wrapping gifts. I'm very good at it. Really? Well, that, that's very, where you... very good. I'm very good at two skills that I am uh, I happen to be very good at. One is wrapping gifts because I, I don't know why, but I am. I practiced it and got really good at it. But folding clothes, in fact, not only am I very good at folding clothes, I'm annoyed when I see clothes that are not folded well. It drives me crazy. And that's because when I was a student at University of Pittsburgh, I worked at the pit shop. And we would have like these giant boxes of T-shirts and sweatshirts and things come in and, you know, I'd have to fold like 200 T-shirts and 75 sweatshirts. And you get very good at being very precise so that when people walk into the store, they see those T-shirts stacked up, identically folded and perfect. And, and then people would like to pull them out and you have to go and like quickly refold them. And so I'm very picky about how everything gets folded. Interesting. Yeah. Including fitted sheets? Included fitted sheets. Always fold fitted sheets. You know, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I am uh, I am not good at wrapping gifts, I have to admit. So, so and it's amazing how divided. So 40% of people say I'm okay at it. 27% say they're good and 28% say they're bad. So it's pretty much a bell curve. So I'm in the bad category. Congrats for you being in the good category. I'm not. Do you own any Hawaiian shirts, Tony? You'll love this. I own one Hawaiian shirt and it's from Pirates Hawaiian Shirt Day. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so 9% of people own several, 23% own one or two, and a lot of people don't own them or like them. 
So I actually have a handful. I got married in Florida on the beach. And one of the gifts I gave all to all my groomsmen was like a Tommy Bahama shirt. So I still keep the one that I got from all of that. But I don't think I've worn one in 20 some years, but I still have a couple in my, maybe they'll come back, Tony, who knows? Last but not least, bonus question. Greatest Steelers quarterback of all time, Terry Bradshaw, Ben Roethlisberger. It's Ben. I think it is Ben. I mean, people forget how rough Bradshaw's first four or five seasons were. He was not a good quarterback for a number of years. I mean, and I remember those years where he was splitting time with Terry Hanratty and Joe Gilliam, and finally Noel had to commit to him. It took a long time for Roethlisberger to get good. It took Ben two seasons to get good. Right. You know, I mean, by his third season, he was clearly one of the best young quarterbacks in the league. And of course, that you know, led them to a lot of wins in his rookie season. But very quickly, he was seen as one of the very good quarterbacks in the league. That said, I would have moved on from Ben two, two seasons ago. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Incidentally, I agree with you on the debate. I think you and I would be in the minority if we. I I, think so. This isn't a poll question we actually asked. It was just for you and I. I'm with you on Ben. I think Terry Bradshaw had the benefit of just a remarkable team around him for the entirety of his career. Yeah. I mean, I mean that offensive line, obviously, but also, I mean, you have, you have two Hall of Fame receivers, receivers. Right. Yeah. You can make an argument that Ben had one. Sure. Oh, yeah. Brown belongs in that conversation. He was was clearly one of the best in the game. But still, boy, that's a good argument. Well, look, Tony, thank you so much for joining. I mean, these are really, really big, hard conversations that we're trying to dissect here about the economy and the influence of politics and really enjoyed sort of digging into it with you. Obviously, your your background is so uniquely sort of centered in the convergence of finance, economics, politics, and, and just really cool to hear your perspective on it. So proud to have watched the success that you've had and continue to have with Hamilton Place and your media career and everything. Just really been a cool thing to watch. And you have me once a month on your podcast, the HPS Macrocast, which we'll make sure we put in the show notes for everybody. Uh, I am definitely the dumbest guy in the room at that particular podcast. We've got John Fagan and Brendan Walsh talking about really complex economic issues, but done in a really sort of fun, cool way. So I'll try to get people to tune into that as well. But any parting words, Tony, before we sign off? Just so much fun to join you, John. I mean, I'm so happy to return the favor for all the all the time you've taken to join on my podcast. So happy to be here. I hope I get to come back again one of these days. It's you can count uh, on it. it's really fun. And, and man, you said 25 years, man. Like, would you have guessed 25 years? Look at look at where we are, man. <laughs> yeah. Nope. It's hard to believe. Hard to believe. All right, man. Tony, thank you so much. You too, brother. Yep. Bye bye. 